0: Go ahead and turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 3, we'll see what the Lord has to share with us and our fellow Christians throughout time and in this world, his letter from Paul. Let's pray and we'll go into God's Word. Father God, thank you that we can come in here today, that we can fellowship with our brothers and sisters. Lord, I pray that you help us as we look into your Word, that we would see your glorious face in Jesus Christ, in the hope that we have For so many things in our life, but more than anything, that we would know who you are and know your glory and be changed by that uh, as we were changed uh, when you made yourself known to us. Lord, I pray that you'd be with us now and be with the other classes going on and the children's classes, uh, from the babies to through all the adults, Lord, that you just open hearts today to your word, that we'd be changed by it. In Jesus' name, amen. And I think I have an announcement to make, but I forgot to bring a bulletin. Anybody have a bulletin you can hand me? Our Pastor, will talk more about this, but uh, we have a seven-day prayer challenge that the Lord would call missionaries. And as we should always be praying for our missionaries, we should be praying to send more. And that may mean the Lord answers our prayer in using us. And that can be in different ways. We'll talk about that today. But make sure you look at that. I'm going to reference that today. So I wanted to remember, make sure it was in there. So we go back into 2 Corinthians. And if you remember, we have two letters to the Corinthians from Paul. There were other letters that Paul references. Corinth had some challenges in the church, as all churches do, but it had some particularly severe ones. And what's so important about 2 Corinthians is we see Paul's response to something we don't know what exactly he told them, but it was severe, he says. My severe letter. Well, we don't have that letter. And they responded to it well. But he's doing a lot of housekeeping in this letter. What has happened in the church is the Judaizers have come in, and the Judaizers, if you recall, they were coming, and there were Jews throughout uh, the Mediterranean world, and they were there in Greece, they were in Rome, they were in all these places. And as the Christian church was moving throughout the world, it was encountering these groups that were resistant, just as uh, many of the Jews in Jerusalem and Galilee and everywhere else had been resistant to Jesus. what they were doing, we call it uh, syncretism, they were taking two things and making them one, which is they were saying, "You have to observe the Jewish law, you have to be a good Jew, then you can be a Christian." So they would say, "Christ is Lord, but there's no way you can be a Christian unless you 're a Jew first. you have to follow all the law well that 's not what Jesus taught, and that 's not what Paul is teaching so But what they're doing is they're following Paul around, and they're getting into churches, they're getting into cities, and they had got into the Corinthian church, and they are tearing at the believers there and causing them to doubt, and they're causing controversy in the church. He calls them the super apostles. So what they would come in is they would come in and they would say, look at Paul, he won't even stay with you. He goes, he leaves, and then he doesn't come when he says he's going to come, which Paul says, I would have come, but I was held by this or this. And they say, well, well, Paul's not very good, but look at us. We are wealthy. God has rewarded us for our faith. We are holier than Paul. Uh, we live righteously. And you should too, and all these things. So, so they, Paul calls them the super apostles in a mocking sense, but they really acted like they were super apostles, and that Paul, the apostle Paul, was the peon. And why would you listen to this guy? He gets beaten and run out of cities. He doesn't have the blessing of God on him, but we do. We have the approval of the authorities. The synagogue is okay with us for the Jews that were in these cities that were converting to Christianity. So they're questioning him. So, so much throughout 2 Corinthians, and you have to keep that in mind. You can't not keep it in mind because as you read 2 Corinthians, Paul continues to respond to these accusations that the super apostles have made against him. And he keeps coming back at it. And if you read it and you don't read it, in the right light, you could think, well, Paul's really got a chip on his shoulder. Paul's really been insulted, and he just wants to get back at them. He's trying to clear his name. And in some sense, he's trying to make them understand, what you're being told about me is not true. But some of it is true. I have been debased. I have been beaten. I have been whipped. I've been near death. Every day I die, is what Paul says. So, this comes up over and over, chapter after chapter in this letter. Paul keeps referencing these other people. So remember, they're in the background. And what these people are doing is they're stealing the Corinthians' joy. They're making them see God is something God isn't, and therefore, they don't see God. And if we don't see God, how can we worship God? Now, God is invisible, and Christ, who is not invisible as a person, if we could see Him, but He has left. So you do not see Him, you worship Him. We worship Christ and we someday will see Him. But now, we can't. So this is the same circumstance the Corinthian church was in. Let's go to chapter 3. I'm going to pick up about where I stopped some weeks back. I think verse 7. And remember, he's talking about the law. And he references how when Moses came down from Mount Sinai, when he had been in the presence of the Lord, this burning fire, this the top of Mount Sinai with thunder and lightnings and fire. And Moses came down and he had the law, and Moses' face shone, it glowed with the glory of God. Now Moses was not God, and it was not Moses' glory. But somehow, the glory of God's presence and His speaking, which God creates when He speaks, He makes things come into being, and He gave Moses the law. And Moses came down from the mountain, and his face was glowing, And there's some tradition, you know, the Bible says this. This is part of, part of Scripture that Moses' face glowed and it scared them. So Moses put a veil over his face because people couldn't deal with the fact that they were talking to Moses with the glowing face. And it is weird because we don't glow. It's not normal. We've put powder on our face and get under a black light or our teeth are white or our shoelaces glow. But this is in broad daylight. The glory of God is greater in intensity than any flash of light you've ever seen. If you think of like nuclear tests, thankfully we haven't witnessed a flash of light from a nuclear device in, in many decades, but at the very instant there's a flash of light that people say is the most intense light they've ever seen, suddenly the day looks like night, except where the brightness of what you've seen. Well, that is nothing compared to the glory of God in His holiness So Moses has seen this, his face is glowing, and they're so scared of him that he puts a veil over his face. And some traditions say that Moses' face just always glowed after that. Now, I don't know that we can read that from Scripture one way or the other. So that's where Paul has been making this argument. So he picks up talking about the law, and he says, this law was glorious in a sense, but Jesus is more so, and that the law itself is a dead letter without the change on our hearts done by the Spirit of God. So pick up in verse 7. for if what was being brought to an end came with glory, much more will what is permanent have glory. So Paul's talking about the law, and he says the law had a glory, so much so that Moses' face was reflecting that glory. It just infected his face with light. But it's not compared to the glory of Christ in the righteousness that we have through Christ's death and resurrection. Through faith in Christ and through the Spirit's work in our hearts, that glory doesn't even exist. It's like it's not even there. Something's so bright, now I can't see it. You think of like uh, somebody flashes a light in your face and suddenly you can't see the room because it was too bright. You know, there's a contrast in light. And he's using that that reference. We've all experienced that in different ways for our eyes to adjust. But he says the law... Had, he, he calls it the ministry of death. And here is God's great law. The psalmist praised the law over and over, but without the Spirit's work in our hearts, we cannot keep the law, therefore the law condemns us to death. So that's what he said, this ministry of death carved in letters of stone. Verse 11, For what was being brought to an end came with glory, the law, much more will what is permanent have glory. And what is permanent is Christ's sacrifice, the fact that our sins are nailed to the cross, and that the Spirit has come to live inside of us. God Himself has taken up residence, and it is permanent. So, verse 12, let's keep going here. Since we have such a hope, we are very bold. Not like Moses who would put a veil over his face so that the Israelites might not gaze at the outcome of what was being brought to an end. And so we go back now and we have Moses, his face is glowing, and it's so bright that it's scaring people. So for, for Moses to do what he needs to do, he feels like, well, i got to veil this glory because people don't understand it. And you know what would have happened too, because it happens over and over, is people would have worshipped that because we tend to, to take these things that way. But he says the, law, the glory of the law that reflected on Moses had to be veiled because it was coming to an end. Yet, the glory of Christ does not have to be veiled. And that's what Paul is saying. He said, the Judaizers, these guys keep accusing me of all these things, but this is what I'm doing. I'm trying to show you the glory of God in the face of Christ. And there's no way I'm ever going to veil that glory. So how do we show that glory? How do you and I? We have the same job that the Apostle Paul had. We have to share the glory of God in the face of Christ. But our faces don't glow, neither did the Apostle Paul. What did he have? He had God's Word. He taught what had been revealed to him and what has been revealed to us in Scripture. He shared that, and in doing so, he was sharing the glory. And he said, I will not veil that. Now, what were the Judaizers doing? They were preaching a false gospel. And to do so, they had to veil the truth. And so God's glory did not show to those who they were teaching. But Paul says, I'm showing you the glory of God, and there's no way I'm going to hide it. I'm not going to cover it up. Put it under a bushel. No, he's not going to hide it. Go back to verse 12. Since we have such a hope, we are very bold, not like Moses Now, go back into this ancient world, and what do we have throughout this ancient world? We have the Jews that have been dispersed throughout Greece, throughout the Mediterranean. And that is one of the first places that Paul goes when he goes to a new city. He finds the synagogue. He knows his Old Testament. They know their Old Testament. And he begins to listen. He gets to know them. He begins to teach. These Judaizers are coming along, and they are blind. So Paul is saying, don't listen to these guys. They're veiling God's glory. But one reason they're doing it is they just can't help themselves. A veil was put there so that they can't see the glory of God. He says that in verse 15. To this day, whenever Moses is read, a veil lies over their hearts. And to to understand Scripture... To understand any good writing, you've got to realize that there's metaphor, there's figures of speech, and this is very clear. He's not talking about something we see with these eyes. He's talking about what we know in our heart, in our mind. And it has been veiled. They could not see it. The veil has been placed. Continuing there, or if you back up into 14, it says, Only through Christ is it taken away which happens in verse 16, when one turns to the Lord, the veil is removed. Now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. And we all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. So the argument is made that these Jews... In Moses' day all the way up till now, they have a veil. And though they see the law, they cannot see the glory of God in it. And though Christ has come, they cannot see the glory of God in Christ because they have a veil. They cannot see it. But Paul says, God is spirit, and where the spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. The veil has been lifted. It is not pinned down on your face, on your heart. And then he says, 18, again, we just read it, we all with unveiled face... Beholding the glory of the Lord are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. So, when we are saved, a lot of, we earn, I shouldn't say earn. It's, it makes it sound like we do something to get it. What are all the benefits of salvation? Maybe we should put it that way. Of the gospel. To be justified by faith in Christ. To be forgiven. So, what are some of them? One. The forgiveness of sins, that's good. To not go to hell. A lot of people want to get saved because they don't want to go to hell. That's not a good reason to be saved. But it is a benefit. There's much more than that. So much so that that is insignificant. The forgiveness of sins is wonderful. It's great. But the big picture, it's not all that significant. Because why do we forgive each other? It may have happened this morning. It may have happened this week. It may have happened 20 years ago. But sometimes spouses rub each other the wrong way. Sometimes we have certain expectations of each other that aren't clear to each other or aren't fair or are just sinful desires of our own part. And then we are mad at the other person because they didn't fulfill that desire, whether that be having the remote in the right spot or enough ice in the tea glass or hurtful words. If we don't forgive each other in order to just say, well, now I hold you back in right standing. What happens when we, have, when we need to forgive each other? It harms our relationship. Ultimately, there's a lot of things we can get over. But if we don't have that freedom of relationship, there's a cloud hanging over it. We can't communicate well. We can't understand each other well because there's a hurt there. Everything's coming through this layer of hurt or this layer of anger. This distance, the distance gets greater and greater until we forgive, and it's an authentic forgiveness of each other. We don't just say, okay, well, you did this to make up for it, so i let you off the hook. It's not how forgiveness is. It's not scaled. We get forgiveness from God because God desires us to have a relationship with Him, and we need forgiveness because when we are against God, when we're sinning, when we're living in sin, when we're... When we know it, and even when we don't know those sins, we have a distance in our relationship with God. And God wants to be close to us. He is close to us. We stand before Him every moment. There's nothing hidden from Him. Yet, our sin creates a barrier in that relationship. So while forgiveness is important, and we cannot have sin and be in the presence of God, it's not just to keep us out of hell that we're forgiven. It's not just to make it so that We don't have this bill that says we should be condemned. It's so that we can have that relationship with God again. Because without that, we lose our friend. We lose that relationship. We act like it isn't there. So what are some other benefits? To have guilt wiped away? Sometimes it's the reversal of forgiveness. We have guilt that we don't know what to do with. I can't forgive that guilt It's just the way I feel because of what I've done. God's salvation sets aside our guilt. And that should free us. But it's not the main thing that salvation does. What about getting into heaven? We get out of hell, we're getting into heaven. Heaven's a wonderful place. It's hard to understand. Scripture gives us much to know, but there's much we haven't seen. Paul talks about that he got to see more of heaven, but he can't even tell you about it. Ezekiel. There are several in, throughout the Bible that got to see a little bit more of heaven. And they're told, be silent. There's a certain limit of what you can know. But salvation, we get entrance into heaven. Is that not the greatest thing? Well, it's a wonderful thing because God's there. But it's not the main thing. What about eternal life? To not worry that death is the very end in this body. But we have eternal life. That is a wonderful thing. And all of these things we should be grateful for. All of these things are wonderful. Deliverance from pain and sickness and hurt. Those are wonderful things. But they're not the main thing. The main thing, and it says it right here, as we get to chapter 4. And we've been looking at it in chapter 3. The highest, best, greatest thing we gain in salvation is that we get to see the glory of God. And we get to see the glory of God in Jesus Christ, in the face of Jesus Christ. All these other things are great, and all of them happen because we get to be in the presence of God. And we get to know the glory of God. And that is one of the hardest things for humans to do. From the very beginning, the first humans ran from the glory of God because they were guilty. Sin. Let's go back now to to chapter 4, and let's start reading there. He says, Therefore, having this ministry by the mercy of God, we do not lose heart. But we have renounced disgraceful, underhanded ways. We refuse to practice cunning or to tamper with God's word. But by the open statement of the truth, we would commend ourselves to everyone's conscience in the sight of God. So Paul is saying... The reason I do what I do in the way that I do is because I know that God is watching. God is present. He's present as I write this letter. He's present when I was there with you. He was present when I ate dinner with you, such and such family. When we walked and talked about this, God is present, and He's present with us. He was present with us this morning when we were brushing our teeth. He was present with us last night when we were watching TV or football games, he's present with us always. And Paul knew that. And Paul says, the reason I preach to you the way that I preach to you and share with this truth with you is because I know that God is present. There are a lot of things we wouldn't do. Think it was, let's go to kids so we can think of ourselves as kids. Let's go back in time now. And there were things we would do that we would not do with our parents present or the teacher present. The teacher goes, I've got to go to the office. I'll be back in five minutes. Well, well, well. The class takes on a whole new environment, a whole different feel, because the cat's away, and the mice will play. But we're never away from God. And he says that. In the sight of God, we commend everyone, and we commend ourselves to everyone's conscience. And he, he's again answering the Judaizers. He said, we don't tamper with the Word. We honor it. We're not underhanded. We're not disgraceful. And he also says, we don't lose heart. So here's Paul continuously being challenged. Not only is he being run out by authorities, uh, he's being whipped, he's nearly died. He's everywhere he goes in these churches, particularly in Corinth. People come in and make false accusations about him, and he says, "We do not lose heart, because why? I'm just going backwards through the sentence. Because in God's mercy, I have this ministry. So as Christians in this world, in this city, in this church." Do we ever feel like, and maybe it hasn't happened to us personally, or maybe it has, and I have a feeling that the longer we're here, the more it will become very personal. Do we feel that we're put upon for being Christians? Do we feel like we're put upon for sharing God's Word? In a big sense, yes. Read our news, or politics, or even seminaries that are liberal-leaning, Theologically, and the Bible and those who believe on it are put upon, they are looked down on as rubes and as intolerant, as in hateful, as judgmental. And we're starting to see it even in our laws. we lived in a nation that gave us protection from laws that would make judgments against religious practices, no matter if they were truthful in God's Word or not. That's coming to an end. And we think, oh, God, how can this be? And Paul says, I was given this ministry, and it was a mercy of God to give me this ministry, so I don't lose heart. I don't lose heart. It's a challenge to us. Okay, pick up in verse 3, chapter 4. Even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing. In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel, of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. So Paul has said all this. He's talked about this veil that was placed on the law, and it continues for the Jews, this veil, the Judaizers, the veil in front of their face. Now, there are, let me not just say there are Jews who are converted in the New Testament, like Paul. And many others. But what he's referencing doesn't have to be just the Jews. There are many people who the gospel is veiled. They don't understand it. In fact, everybody in this room was in that group. And there may be some in that group today. And the gospel was veiled. We heard about it. We heard about this Jesus. We read the Bible. And it just didn't change us. Until it did. The veil was lifted. And when the veil was lifted, what did we see? We didn't see necessarily, we see these things, but we didn't see like, oh, here's my chance to get out of hell. Here's my chance to get into heaven. Here's my chance to get forgiveness. Here's my chance to get rid of my guilt. No, we saw in some way the glory of God in the face of Christ. This Jesus is God, and he is glorious. And with the veil lifted, the glory meant something to us. It meant everything to us. And that's how the Spirit moves in our lives. Now, a lot of us, particularly if you're young, we don't necessarily remember the moment of to say, like, well, this is the moment of salvation. Some people who are older, I would say a lot of people who are older, look back on their life and say, well, I was saved then, but somewhere in this time in my life that I came to faith. And some people, it's like a lightning strike. They're like, yeah, I can find the spot on the ground of my life and say, like, that's when I came to know the Lord. How many of you remember your birth? Uh, we were reading this book, and... Uh, J.I. Packer says, well, I was told that I was born on a certain date, and I have no reason to doubt it. But none of us remember that first birthday, or the second or third or fourth. We believe it because we were told. We were told how we were born. Maybe not in too much detail when we were young, but we know. Well, that's how salvation is too. We often come to know the Lord and don't understand exactly how that happened. And we spend much of our life maybe understanding it in the wrong way, Maybe we know what we felt, we know what we knew, but one of the problems we have as people is we don't really understand ourselves very well. We don't understand God very well. And what Scripture is getting after throughout from Genesis to Revelation is to help us to understand God and to understand ourselves. you understand those two things, you're further along than most of the world than all of the world, to understand ourselves. We tend to think of ourselves too much like God. We have a lot of pride in ourselves. We have a lot of trust in ourselves. We have a lot of hope. Or maybe our hopes are dashed because of ourselves. Maybe we have no pride because of what ourselves have done. And we base all of our life based off of me. Well, if I'm standing in the presence of God and I see the glory of God, do I think about those things? Should I think about those things? No. No. The glory of God, the greatness of God should overwhelm any thoughts we have of ourselves so that we see the truth. We know so little. We make ourselves the center, but we are infinitesimal in the cosmos which God made and holds and stirs, stirs around. We were talking about that. I was talking about it with somebody else. We were talking about people saying galaxies as they move in relation to each other is what astronomers are telling us. And I don't doubt that things happen like that, but I'm like, how did you measure that? The Milky Way we see at night is the same one they've seen the entire time humanity has been on the world. It's never changed. And I'm like, well, how do they measure how much it moved? And if you study that, there's some light wave, and they say, we know it's going that way, or we know it's going that way. That's about all we know. But you know who moves those? It's God. And they're so great, they're so vast, they're so huge. This world and its seven and something billion people, God made them all, he the life they have is because he gave them breath, including us, and we can think, well, I'm just one of a billion. If you look at the news and you follow politics, billion just seems like a small word these days, but it's not. A billion is a lot. A million is a lot. If we were to all sit in here and count to a billion, we'd be here for weeks and months. <clears throat> but God is great, and we, we see his glory. Continue therein. he talks about that the gospel is veiled, and it is veiled to those who are perishing. So, we were perishing before the gospel was unveiled to us, but those who still do not trust Christ, do not recognize the glory of God in Christ, the gospel is still veiled. Let's go back and read verse 4 again and move in here. In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds. Who's the God of this world? Well, he's not a God, for one thing. It's Satan. But Satan is not a God. So this scripture, don't let this scripture confuse you. He, he uses that term to say like, Who is the God of the United States? Well, it's often money. Money is our God. Well, is money really a God? No, but we treat it like one. Our society is controlled by lust and money and hate. Those aren't gods. Those are sinful attitudes that are present in all of us. So when he says the God of this world, recognize that Satan is not a God. He is not God. He is not like God at all. He is a created being. God has him on a leash. But he has blinded this world. The systems of this world are evil. They are sinful. And the God of this world, the ruler in, who gets under God's allowance, rules over the sin in people's lives so that we do not see God. That's part of the veil. So back in verse 4, "...the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel." of the glory of Christ. Who is the image of God? Christ is the image of God. Christ is God. God is three. God the Father, God the Spirit, God the Son. We were talking again in our book study we've been doing, how often in our lives as Christians do we forget about the Spirit? We say it, we recognize it, in some sense we don't forget, but we tend to think of God the Father and God the Son and God the Spirit. And so part of that is, is our language. We, we think he's that still, small voice. No, that was the Father. But they're all one. They're all working together. And salvation comes through all, the Father, the Son, and the Spirit, through the one God and the three persons. And the Trinity is so complex. It's so hard to understand. We don't have the right words for it. And, but in life, we rely on that. And so how do we trust the Spirit? We trust the Word breathed by the Spirit. We trust that it is through the Spirit that we are saved. Without the Spirit, we have no Bible and we have no salvation. Even with Jesus' death on the cross, it is a spirit that moves in us that we would see the glory of God. And let's, that's what's happening here, as Paul explains some more. He says that Christ is the image of God. Now we say man is made in God's image. That's what we learn in Genesis. But we are not the image of God. We're made in His image. But we don't measure up to God. And God is not a man, but Christ is the image of God. Do you want to see God? Look at Christ. And where do you look at Christ? Look at Christ here in Scripture, in the Gospels. Continuing there, verse 5. For what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord, with ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. For God who said, Let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God. In the face of Jesus Christ. So God created the world. What is the beginning? Let's turn there. You don't have to put it on the screens. Most of you probably can say this from memory. Genesis 1. In the beginning, Genesis 3. And God said, let there be light and there was light. So the earth, the world, the cosmos... It's hard to understand exactly all the details other than the simple fact that God created it and there was darkness. And God said, let there be light. And now there was no darkness. The light came to be. And Paul says, that's how you got saved. That's how people get saved. God says to creation, a dark creation, let there be light. And he says to a dark heart, a dark soul, let there be light, and there was light." He said. that's what he's saying here. For God, verse six, who said, "Let light shine out of darkness has shone in our hearts. And what is that light? The light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. So what is our need? It's to see the glory of God. And how do we see it? God reveals it in our hearts when He removes the veil. If you look at, let's go back now and let's compare a couple of these verses. Verse 4, in their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. And then verse 6, God said, let light shine out of darkness. He has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. In these verses, we can compare two things. One, what are they both talking about? Light. Veiled for one, it is shown in the other. What is that light? The light of the gospel. It says in verse 4, is veiled. What is it shown? In verse 6, the light of knowledge. The important knowledge, which is the gospel. The most important knowledge. And what is veiled in verse 4? The glory of Christ. What is shown in verse 6? The glory of God. They are the same. And what does verse 4 say? The image of God. He says, seeing the light of the gospel, the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. In verse 6 it says, the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. So I said that a little while ago. You want to see God? Look at Christ. Look at the gospels. Look at the word. And he's throughout the whole thing. I say the gospels, but all of the Bible reveals Christ. What did Christ tell The men on the road to Emmaus, he sat down with them and he showed them about himself in the law, in the prophets, the Old Testament. It is the face of Jesus Christ we seek. So we look to Jesus to see the glory of God. And what does that entail? Well, we look at Jesus' life. We look from the manger on, mainly his ministry, how he treated people, what he said about his father, what he said about himself. What's the most important part of the gospel story? It's Calvary. Without Calvary, nothing makes sense. Why would Christ come? Why would He be a man? Except that He died on Calvary. Because God cannot die, but a man can. But you can't keep God in the grave. He created life. He breathed life into the first man, the first woman, and He breathed life into us. And Though He died and He came off that cross and He was in the grave... He was God, and he was raised again, and he defeated sin. And that is a glorious thing for us to see. So, to sum up what is going on here. Paul has been challenged about what he's teaching, what he's preaching. They're saying, why do you just keep telling us about these things? The Judaizers are just saying, you do good, you're good. You give enough, keep me in my my Cadillac and my my three-piece togas or whatever they wore. These Judaizers, the super apostles, and they said, "You're good." And it is really within us; it would be really easy for us to really be good legalists. It's our nature. Now we, you say that, you think, well, the first thing we do is break God's law. Well, it is. But if that's all we have to claim, that's all we have to to strive for to accomplish something, well, we will try, but we'll fail. And we do, and we have, but Christ did not. He didn't fail in what he came to do. You go to John 3.16, and what does it say? For God so loved the world, he gave his only begotten Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. Because he gave the Son, that is the point of the gospel, that he came, he died, he purchased eternal life for us, And what do we get with that? The most important thing, we see the glory of God. We can't see it with our faces veiled. We can't lift the veil. The Spirit does that. So, okay, well, what do I do? If you just told me that, as Paul is saying, we preach the gospel, yet these people's faces veiled, they can't respond. If if the Spirit does it, do I just sit and say, okay, well, logically, what you're telling me is the Spirit has to lift the veil, so I'm just going to sit back and wait for that to happen to people. That is not what Paul is doing. What is Paul saying? He's saying, I'm showing you the Gospel. I'm giving the Gospel. I'm giving it to people. I'm telling them about Christ. Yet they cannot see the glory. But it's there. I heard one illustration made is that what we do when we're sharing God's Word is we put kindling in a fireplace, in a fire pit. We put it there. We get the fire built. We get the fuel there. But we don't put the spark there's only one person who lights the fire, and that's God. But we put the kindling there. So Paul is saying the veil was lifted, but if the Spirit lifts the veil on us and there's nothing we don't know Christ we don't know anything of Christ. God doesn't whisper in our ear without any knowledge of his word and say, Jesus is Savior. You've never heard of him, but trust him. And then we're like, Well, I got saved. I just had this whisper in my ear. Never heard of Jesus before, but trust in him. That is not how salvation works. That is not how the gospel works. We are tasked with sharing the gospel. That was Paul's burden, but he knew who changed hearts. So what do we do? And We do this, I think, fairly well here, but we can always do it better. We send the gospel out. We share it with each other. We share it with our friends, with our family, with our community, with our world. And why do we do that? Because we trust that when God lifts the veil, they will see Christ and see God's glory in the face of Christ. You can't get saved without knowing who Christ is. But God has given us His Word. He's given us so many ways, even in a world where we still have a great amount of freedom to share the gospel. Even in places where it's very hard, the gospel goes out. In China, right now, there are probably more Christians than there are in the United States. Now they've got a lot larger base of people. But the gospel is moving in a place that is, does not want it. The government doesn't want it. The government tries to stop it. The government even lifts up false gospels that call themselves Christianity so that people will, be, will buy into a Christianity that supports the government there. But the gospel goes out. So that's what we're called to do. We're called to teach We're called to reach. Put people there that will share the gospel. Be in places where we can share the gospel. Be prepared that we can share the gospel. Put our treasure into things that will help the gospel go out. And then God lifts the veil. And with Christ presented, those with the veil see nothing. And you can preach the gospel and preach it and preach it and preach it, and they'll never change. But when God lifts the veil and they see Christ, the glory of God is there and they can't deny it. That's what happened to us. We don't explain it that way. We don't look talking images. Maybe somebody in here did and says, well, I was in Sunday school one day and the teacher it was fourth grade. and was talking about this and I saw the glory of God and I got saved. No, but you knew your need of a Savior and you knew who the Savior was and trusted him. Before that, you didn't. It was God's work. But that person in that class... Put Christ in front of you so that when the veil was lifted, are we doing that? Can we do that better? In our church, we've got tons of kids. We've got visitors who don't know the Lord. There will be people in this room who may be visiting our church for the first time. Go say hi to them. Welcome them. Recognize that they may be a believer and we're here together to worship the Lord and celebrate all that He has done. But they may not know the gospel. Or they may know something they think is the gospel. And they don't know the glory of God. So be encouraged that we have a job to do. And that's to present Christ, to show His face, His glorious face. We can't show the glory, though. It's there in the truth of God's Word. And when God lifts the veil, they'll see it. So let's prepare our world for that unveiling. Let's pray. Father God, we thank You for Your Word. Lord, help us to recognize the things in our lives that hold us back from sharing Your Word, from showing Your worth and that you are glorious, Lord. That we go day by day forgetting that we are in your presence in every moment, and you love us so much that Christ died for us. Lord, help us to remember the glorious work of Christ and be burdened that everyone would know it. And if everyone would know it, Lord, that you would lift the veil and that they would come to trust you, Lord. Help us to do that now. Help us now as we go to worship you that our hearts would sing, that we would recognize uh, your glory with thankful hearts, confessing hearts, Lord, that we would worship you truthfully and that what we say would not be different than what we think and feel. Help us get there, Lord. We thank you for your many blessings. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, see you guys in church.